Naomi and Rebecca. Well, it's good to be here with you today. We look forward to the day when all of us are able to be back together again and and uh, worship together. Hopefully that won't be too far in the future. This morning we are looking at the fifth of seven letters that we've been going through and the that are addressed to the churches in uh, the first couple chapters of the book of Revelation. Jesus is the one who's speaking, and he's speaking through the Apostle John, we believe, as this message is being given. When the Apostle Paul, not John, but the Apostle Paul, was in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey, if you want to have a little idea for your geography where we're talking about, during his second missionary journey, uh, he established a Christian church in the city of Ephesus. And uh, I put up a slide to show where the seven churches are that we've been talking about. And uh, given the region, I know that helps me when I'm trying to figure out, you know, what's being discussed. You see the city of Ephesus. It's over near the Mediterranean. The church there obviously became quite strong and vibrant. And, uh, became very evangelistic because they took the gospel out into their region and many churches were founded. Um, Not just the seven churches we're talking about, but many churches were founded. And one of these cities that a church was established in was in Sardis. And I don't know if you can see that, but um, the travel line that goes kind of uh, from the left up and then back down around to the right. Uh, Sardis, I believe, is the second star down towards the uh, the bottom there. If, is that correct? Nope, the third one up. Um, that's, that's where we're talking about. And uh, before we read the scriptures, let me just uh, ask God's blessing on his word. Lord, We again just ask that you will bless the hearing and the reading of your word as we go through this passage this morning. And we pray that you open up our minds, our hearts, and our ears that we might hear and receive your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 3, beginning in the first verse, and we'll go ahead and read that passage this morning. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then, What you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. 
and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. And in this word, and in this passage of six verses, I was sharing with Alan this morning, there's a lot of, there's a lot of sermons in this, this one passage. I've got about 20 minutes that I will be sharing, so some of it you will probably be wondering what happened with that, or can you expound more on this? And this morning, I, I will have to just let you know, you're going to have to do some studying on your own probably to, to get much deeper. We should remember, though, as we read these letters to the churches that John has written, that each of these churches were very real churches with very real people, with very real histories, just like us. They did exist, even though in another part of the world, in another time, but they dealt with many of the same things that we deal with from day to day. And while these letters were written to specific churches to address specific issues that that church is having, I think that they are, the letters are also meant to represent the other churches throughout the church age, even into the present day. What those churches were dealing with, what Jesus was talking to them about, has been repeated many times in church history. It is repeated again today. And although I frequently remind you that we need to make sure that we look at the historical context of a of a text, what did the original writer mean for the original hearer? The amazing thing with scripture is many passages and many things that Jesus and God has given us in his holy scriptures. While they do address particular issues at particular times, somehow the Holy Spirit takes that message and makes it part of our life, too. And it applies to us. And uh, I I don't know of, of any other book I've ever read that could possibly have done that. And it's the Holy Spirit that accomplishes it. The particular types of problems that these churches experienced have been experienced in many churches throughout history. And it continues today. We we deal with this. So while we look at what Jesus is admonishing to the church in Sardis this morning, we can also look around and even look at ourselves at Redwood Christian Fellowship to see if his admonishment might be appropriate for us too. That is important, looking at scripture and letting it penetrate us and into our souls. Let's pray that the same admonishments don't apply to us. The city of Sardis had been a great city about a thousand years before this letter was written. 
Sardis is located about 30 miles southeast of Tharatera, which is the church we looked at last week, uh, last Sunday. It was located in a fertile valley near a, a range of mountains. It had been the capital city of the region of Lydia, which that uh, chart, if it gets back up there, Lydia covers a, a, a big part of that uh, picture. And that's the, the state or the region that is involved. The city was a center for wool and dyeing, which were all vi- very vital at that time and in that region. And they found great wealth from the mining of gold in a nearby river. The original city of Sardis was built on a narrow plateau 1,500 feet above the valley floor. Later, as the city outgrew that particular location, a second part of the city was built down below it on the valley floor. So there were actually two sections, if you will, of the city of Sardis. The greatest of the Sardin kings was Creotius, I believe is how his name would be uh, pronounced. He reigned during the 6th century BC and was almost like Solomon in the sense of wealth and how people would reflect on him or point to him as the, the example of that time of, you know, if you want wealth, if you want luxury, then look at King Croesus. That's, that's wealth. He witnessed the city reaching its zenith of wealth and fame and decadence in his lifetime. And he was also king when it fell into disaster. Twice in its history, the city had depended so much on its defensive position and, and their great wealth and their opulence that they had become sluggish and lazy. Two great armies, the Persians under Cyrus and the Greeks under Antichius, had taken the fortress by surprise and conquered it. And then in A.D. 17, a great earthquake struck the region and the city once again was left in rubble. Tiberius, the Roman emperor at the time, rebuilt the city and in gratitude, the citizens built a temple in his honor in their city. So this city, Sardis, had seen times of great prominence in the region, and it's suffered great losses in its history. The church in Sardis, which is of more concern to us this morning, left very little information concerning when or by whom it was founded or really much of its history at all. I think legend uh, gives credit to possibly Mark being the one who helped establish it, but that's just uh, nothing has, has been able to be proven to, to substantiate that. The letter here in Revelation is written about 30 years after the church in Sardis was founded. What a short history. I mean, that's the, about the lifetime of this church. It's been about 30 years. And in a short time span, it had fallen into the state that has been identified here 
in chapter 3. The problem here doesn't seem to be a heresy like we've seen in other churches or persecution, although both of these may have taken place. We're not told anything in this letter about it. In verse 1, Jesus said to them, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I cannot think of a worse admonishment that a Christian church could receive than what Jesus said to this church. You are dead. While the church had a reputation that the community obviously saw, they probably had all the right programs. They had all the right outreach groups. They probably lent out their building for community events. They were obviously prominent in the community. But Jesus said that they were dead. Despite the acquisition of a reputation, it appears that it was all a pretense or worse, a great deception upon the community and or maybe even upon themselves. Maybe we're not told of a particular heresy that the church in Sardis dealt with. And we didn't get told of this, any type of persecution that was taking place. But we also have a reason why that may be the case. Because the church was dead. A dead church isn't a threat to anybody. So why do you need to worry about persecution? Why would there be any heresies? It's a dead church. You know, unfortunately, we have this same type of church today around the state, around our region, around the country, around the world. Modern society is full of this type of church. There are churches, I don't even know why they bother calling themselves a church, but there are churches that don't believe that the Bible is the word of God. And that the living God speaks to his people directly and authoritatively through its pages. That's been weakened or put aside because it was offensive. Or it's fables or legends that they don't believe in. These are churches that have watered down the message of the gospel. And the scriptures so that while the building may look like a church. And they may have the 503C tax exemption. The occupants look more like a country club. Addressing societal issues that they disagree with or think that that, that becoming more like the world may encourage people to come in their doors. That's a fairly common thing over the last few decades. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's soften the message. Let's not, let's not Make it offensive if people come to visit us.
They call themselves a church. But they're a counterfeit. The church in Sardis here was dead. They were, as the Jews were described in Isaiah 29, where it says, as people that draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. Or you remember when Jesus was describing the Pharisees in the Gospel of Matthew, and he called them what? Whitewashed tombs. Dead. I don't have to spend a lot of time trying to explain or translate the Greek word used here and just, or just describe what the word means in English because we all understand what the word dead implies. Although in this context, in this letter, and how it's being used, the word does mean that the church is spiritually dead. And we can get that a little bit by the, the beginning phrase um, in verse 2. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. They may have, a, they may have been physically alive. They had things going on that it was obvious there's people in that building. They're active in the community. They're active in doing things. But they were spiritually dead. How does a church die? What kills the church? What happened to Sardis? While we don't know the specifics, we do know that when a church begins to allow sin to fester in its doors, when it allows error and heresies to be taught in its congregations, when they compromise on truth, when there's unrepented sin among among its members or among its leaders, these things are what it will bring about death. As sin begins to slowly take firm hold in the life of a church, a life will begin to allow a church will allow things that they would have never allowed had they been faithful to their calling and faithful to Christ. That type of church becomes opposite of the description of the godly man in Psalm chapter 1. Those in a dying church walk in the counsel of the wicked, and they stand in the way of sinners, and then they finally will sit in the seat of scoffers. They become more and more comfortable with what's going on in their path. If it goes on long enough, a church will eventually die spiritually. But here in this letter, Jesus did not stop there. He didn't give up on this local congregation in Sardis. Instead, he calls them to repentance. Look at verse 2 and 3. 
Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Some translations may say watch instead of wake up. This is a frequent command in the New Testament for all Christians. In Romans 13, Paul wrote the church in in Rome and he says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Wake from sleep. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he writes, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. And this is just a couple examples of this. Watchfulness should be the constant attitude of the Christian life. If you're a Christian today, you're called Be watchful. Wake up. To be on watch against the tricks and the lures of the devil that are all around us. To watch against temptation. To watch for the coming of the Lord. Watch out for false teaching. You know, while you may think that that particular task is the responsibility of the leaders of a church, it isn't. It is the responsibility, but it's the responsibility for everyone. You're just as responsible to make sure that false teachings are not allowed to be taught from this pulpit or in our studies. Here at the church in Sardis, they're commanded. Jesus tells them, wake up. Watch out. As if they are being reminded that to become slothful in their faith is dangerous, even deadly. And the command goes on. He says, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Their works are acknowledged. Jesus sees what they are doing. But they're found to be imperfect or deficient in some way. And it's not described to us what that is. But that does let us know that it's possible that we can do things in our day-to-day activity in Christ that could be looked at as deficient works, things that are imperfect. Wrong motivations, maybe. Doing it for the wrong reason.
They do not have God's divine approval. But remember what you had received and heard. He says, keep it and repent. They obviously had received the gospel sometime in their past. And heard the truth from somebody. And there must have been a time where they actually followed it and lived the life that they were supposed to live. But something took place. Something happened that we've already talked about. Allowing sin, allowing false teachings, allowing things to take place that they became comfortable with. He tells them, remember what it is you received and heard and hang on to that. Go back to that. Rehash through it and look and see what the truth was at that time. It's still the truth. Cling on to it. Repent of your sins and return to the truth. These verses have several imperatives or actions that are essential or urgent for the members of this church to follow. And this is one of those passages that could have a whole sermon to itself. In Jesus, in this passage, Jesus calls them to remember. Look in those verses and see that. To repent. To keep, and in verse 2, to wake up. These are all actions that he's calling them to do. He's calling them back to faith and back to him. And then Jesus tells them what will be the end results if they fail to repent and return to their calling. He says they will be caught by surprise. When he returns, when I read this, I kind of remembered the, the story or the parable of the bridegrooms that Jesus had. Some were prepared and some weren't. That type of scenario, being caught off guard, unawares, thinking you had more time and finding out that you don't. They'll be caught off guard by surprise when he returns and he'll catch them off guard and they'll be found to be in their present state. To be called dead spiritually and have Jesus return would be a sad state of affairs. They neglected their calling and maybe worse Maybe they were living in another manner and thought or claimed that they were doing his calling. They came up with their own message. This is what I think Jesus loves and how he loves and how he lives and disregarding what scripture actually says. This church was a poor representative of Jesus Christ to the world. What a sad, embarrassing, shameful position to find yourself in. 
And while we're told that this condition of the church in, in Sardis, that this is, this is what they look like, is by no means the only church in church history to find themselves in this position. As I mentioned in the beginning, there's many churches. I read a, I actually read something in the local news about a, a church and an act of some vandalism that took place. And when you read this, the, the story of it, and I'm not going to share the whole thing, but you sit there reading it thinking, <laughs> this is exactly what this letter is talking about right here. And it's a type of church that thinks they're doing the right thing and are far from it. Wake up, church. Wake up, Redwood Christian Fellowship. Wake up, Christians. But in this message of condemnation, it's not all totally bad news. Because we find a glimpse of hope among these words. Look at verse 4. There seems to be still a few in this church who had not soiled their garments as they're described and are considered worthy. This is one of those passages in scriptures that reveals a doctrine dealing with the holy remnant that comes up again and again through the pages of the Bible. It's to bring encouragement in the midst of what can look like doom and disaster. While we're looking at this church that Jesus is saying and describing as being spiritually dead, he's saying, but I still have a few. And then looking at that particular word that uh, is translated from the Greek, it, it does describe very few. This remnant are those who held strong and were faithful, even when everyone else in the church was giving up or giving their hearts over to the things of the world compromising, softening the, the message. They were the ones who were sitting back there going, no, we shouldn't be doing this. This is not, this is not what we should be doing. And these are those that Jesus says that he will never blot out their name from the book of life and that he will confess them before his father and before his angels. This book of life is mentioned in a number of passages in the Bible, and it's a divine journal that records the names of all those whom God had chosen to save and who are therefore to possess eternal life. If you are truly a Christian, your name is in this book. And he's saying that I will never blot out that name. And then I'll confess you before my father and before angels. And under no circumstances will he ever erase those names from this book. For their number has been sealed. 
Jesus Christ through the Spirit persists in preserving them, in preserving you if you are a Christian. Your salvation is secure. If you were to be in that church in Sardis and be one of those few, you are secure. So in this passage, we have a church that's in a dire condition. But we do have, I said we didn't have a lot of history of the church of Sardis, but we do have a few glimpses from church history that reveal that apparently there was some type of revival that took place. There are brief mentions of them, such as the bishop, such and such from the church in Sardis, attended one of the church councils that took place in the first centuries of the church. And there were several that that brought up through different time frames. And it appears that the church may have existed all the way up into the 14th century, at which time a Mongol conqueror, Lamerlin, destroyed the whole city of Sardis, including the, the church that was there. So they existed into that day. Unfortunately, even today, this church doesn't exist any longer because it, uh, a lot of these churches became a mosque as time went on and the Turks and the uh, Arabs uh, took them over. I actually have a couple photos that I'm going to finish the sermon with. If uh, Ted bring those up, these are a couple photos that I found on the internet that just kind of, again, helps you. That's where the original city was probably located, up at the top of the, the uh, Africa, uh, Acropolis there. That's a picture of what the lower city would probably look like down in the valley, although there isn't a current city there. There's a neighboring city that is probably with this picture of. And that's a Jewish synagogue that uh, they found the remnants of, probably a very wealthy and uh, affluent Jewish community that was in Sardis, uh, which would would also uh, lend uh, us to understand or believe that if the church in Sardis was a strong congregation, and there was such a Jewish community that was there, and they if they were following Christ and doing what they were supposed to do, then they probably would have been suffering some consequences and persecution from the Jewish community at least, because they were the ones who were typically against the, the Christians. So just a few pictures. So what application can we take from this passage? What does this, what does this mean to, to me? What do, what do I really care about the church in Sardis that it is found to be spiritually dead? We need to follow Christ and serve him and be faithful to him so that we don't go down the path 
to being a dead church. And I think any church could be susceptible to that. It's very easy for us to change the way that we think the Christian life should live so that it's more favorable, looks nicer in our eyes to the community. So we need to be faithful in serving Christ and following him. We need to be people and we need to be a church that is quick to confess sin, individual sin, sin that we may have as a congregation when that takes place, and seek God's face, which we should be doing daily. We need to practice and become known as people who possess and exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. You know, we so often seem to know the fruits of the Spirit and can think of that passage, but we forget many times that just above that, there's a couple verses that deal with what you would look like if you were not a believer in Christ, the sins that you would be involved in. But we should be opposite of those. We should be exhibiting in our lives and in the life of this church. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruits of the Spirit. When someone looks at us, that's what they should be seeing, or at least parts of these. And we should pray. Even though I put that last... Maybe it would have been more appropriate to be first. Pray that God will be merciful to us. That he'll keep us from sin. And that he'll give us the strength to be faithful to the end. Don't let Redwood Christian Fellowship become the church in Sardis. Don't be involved in that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. While there's so much here that we could talk about, so much that we can we can expound on, Lord, we pray that what we've been able to take this morning, that you'll forgive us, Lord, if we are harboring any sin that we haven't confessed. We pray that you'll, through your Holy Spirit and your word, will prick our hearts when we give in to temptations, when we, when we do sin, Lord, and that we will be quick to confess them and repent of them and turn away from them. We pray, Lord, that you will be with us as individuals, as families, and as we come together in this local body, Lord, as a congregation, we pray that you will give us the strength, that you will protect us, that you will pour your grace upon us, that you'll be merciful to us, that you'll help us to strengthen in our faith and become bold in our evangelism. 
We thank you, Lord, that you do not treat us and our sins in the way that they should be treated. Instead, that you love us and you saved us. And we rejoice in that this morning. In Jesus' name.